You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters, because accounting matters. Today's episode is bittersweet as we wrap up the five-episode mini-series covering the IPO process. We've covered so much already, and all of our guests were fantastic and brought a different perspective to each facet of the IPO process. This series has been special as it was our first time trying out a mini-series. We hope to make more in the future and give you bite-sized pieces around some of these deeply complex accounting topics. I'd like to thank each of our guests one last time for joining us. Now, let's jump in to learn more about what happens after the IPO. We hope you enjoy the episode and learn something new. This is Sarah Cage, and I'm here with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's national quality leader. And we also have back in the booth, Chase Anderson, a managing director from our Phoenix, Arizona office. Chase is here to bring us home for the fifth and final installment of the Accounting Matters IPO mini-series, not to be confused with an HBO miniseries, although I'm sure this is, has been on par with that level of entertainment. <laughs> but before we dive in, here's a little recap, or should I say, previously on Accounting Matters. We had part one, which was get to know the IPO. We had part two, which was a spotlight on IPO readiness. We had part three, where we talked through financial statement requirements and common issues. And then part four, we went beyond the financial statements. And then today, we will be talking about after the initial public offering, what next? So we have a full agenda of topics to cover. So let's just jump straight in and wrap up our IPO journey. Adam, let me ask you the first question. Okay. Let's say a company goes through the IPO process, files a registration statement with the Securities and Exchange Commission, their form S-1 generally. What does it mean for the registration statement to be declared effective? And what happens after that event? So great question. Uh, I think maybe kind of help rehash kind of the steps to get up to that point when it will be declared effective. So just kind of walking through what a company would have gone through up to this point. So obviously, you know, skipping all the legwork that went into preparing the initial S1, the S1's ready to go. You know, generally a company will first submit a confidential filing with the SEC. Um, which basically means they don't have to have the public guys kind of scrutinizing their company at that point and all the comments that come back and forth from the SEC. Um, the SEC will review that, give their comments. You know, the company will go back and work on that, resolve those comments, make edits, whatever needs to be done. Um, and then as they kind of progress towards that, you know, targeted IPO date, they will, you know, ultimately publicly file that S1 um, with the SEC. Hopefully comments are limited or none at that point. Uh, while the SEC is reviewing that kind of final public um, registration statement, the company will likely be commencing its dog and pony show where they'll be going around <laughs> trying to garner investor buzz and interest um, in their IPO. Um, you know, interestingly enough, like this used to be a big like travel of all the executives going from city to city, talking to analysts and investment firms and, you know, all sorts of interested parties that might want to invest in the company. But obviously with the the events of COVID recently, um, we've actually seen a lot of these roadshows even go virtual. So it's, mm. you know, as we all work virtually, you know, even kind of the capital markets structuring of these deals, we saw a lot of virtual roadshows, which you know, frankly, it saves a lot of money. Yeah. Um, so the roadshow happens, try to, you know, garner that interest, you know, assuming the SEC is good with the, then the, the S1 statement, 
um, everything looks good, the SEC will you know, declare that registration statement effective. So there'll be an effectiveness notice um, issued by the SEC. Um, and it's usually done right around the timing of when the IPO pricing is going to happen, if not on the date of pricing itself. Um, so once it's declared effective and the company kind of has the green light, they can actually then commence the uh, the initial offering. So trading will begin on those, you know, those set of shares or debt securities or whatever the the uh, the offering was for um, to the public. And so the public, you know, can obviously then start making their investments in the company. Um, ultimately, the IPO will eventually close, and then the company will, you know, bring in all the cash that they got from selling off those securities. Um, you know, it's usually a big day of that IPO. You know, you see a lot of the company's team and executives are, you know, at the various exchanges, ringing bells, like popping champagne bottles, <laughs> having a yeah. good time. Hopefully, you know, that the, if the offering went successful, if it was priced right, if there was good interest, and all that, all those things happen. And and obviously, you know, the the whole process for the for the IPO is long, right? Like it's months of work, it's late nights, it's weekends, it's tons of people working together, probably. You know, saying a lot of four-letter words to each other too throughout the process. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's not for the faint of heart, um, and so there is a lot to celebrate once you got to that milestone. But I think as we're here to talk about today, you know, you maybe get a little reprieve, take a little vacation time, but um, you know, the fun doesn't stop there. You know, after the IPO, you're now a public company, and so there are certain standards that you're going to be held to and things that you need to, you know, ensure that your company is doing going forward. So you're saying after months of burning the midnight oil, the late nights aren't over. Correct. Correct. All right. Well, hopefully they're not as terrible, but <laughs> yes, there, there will still be late nights. You, you know, if you work in accounting, there's always a few late nights, right? Yeah. And I guess they have to start doing their periodic reporting requirements and meeting those. So Chase, can you kind of expand on what that means? to meet those periodic reporting requirements? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, being an ex-auditor, I definitely remember those days of getting the IPO ready across the finish line and then being <laughs> like, oh, we're, we're get a little bit of a break before boom, you go right into your, your periodic reporting requirements, which again, if you don't plan appropriately, you can have some really long nights, really long weekends. So it's, planning is crucial and monitoring for employee burnout. That's, that's very, very important. So yeah. plan accordingly. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, periodic reporting, like you're a public company now, now you start acting like a public company. So, so what, what does that mean? Uh, you know, in one of our previous podcasts, we covered on the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, which really drives almost all of the, the future reporting requirements. Yeah. Uh, so when we think about annual 10Ks, quarterly 10Qs, 8Ks for current reporting, and I'll go into some of these um, in more detail. So the, the big one, Form 10K, annual financial statements, that's audited. Um, substantive testing by your auditors the first year as a public company management will get a break from SOX 404 A and B uh, A being management's um, certs and then B being the auditor actually auditing management's assessment of their own internal controls um, in addition to a form 10k starting in your first 10 your first quarter um, Q1 2 whatever um, form 10Q that is a smaller document. It's reviewed by your auditors. If your auditors start auditing, question them as to what they're doing. <laughs> it should be a much simpler exercise. And that document can be condensed. So you can really simplify what you're reporting on a quarterly basis. You don't have to repeat all the jargon you, re you just got done disclosing in your Form 10-K. With 
with current reporting, periodic reporting, XBRL reporting is huge. That stands for extensible business reporting language. Items in your forms need to be tagged to a certain code. Um, that takes some time. I hear it can be really tedious. Yeah, yeah. And that's applicable for all registrants now. There was a phase-in period for a while there, but now that applies to everybody. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it's tedious for the company, but it's helpful for investors. Right. So. Yeah. yeah. And that is a very specific skill set too, <laughs> knowing how to tag. <laughs> it really is. It yeah. is not in my wheelhouse. Um, some other things to be mindful of are the CEO and CFO certifications. This is this is huge. You know, and previously we talked about some liability now tagged to some of these people that are signing the documents, and this is personal liability. This is, you know, a tremendous amount of risk. And so, Section three hundred two and nine hundred six are some big ones to be mindful of that are going to be. Uh, filed with your 10Qs and your 10Ks um, with the SEC. Um, and, and two other regulations to, to note for your periodic reporting that are gonna drive pretty much everything when you, when you think about these documents that you're working in, and that's Regulation SK. And I think about that one as this non-financial information. Uh, so think description of business, management, discussion and analysis, um, et cetera. And then Regulation SK. And that's gonna be more financial driven form and content, um, financial statement footnotes, and one of the big ones too is Article 11 pro forma. It's kind of falling into that bucket. So, so those are really some of the big ones when it comes to being a public company. Your PR reporting is going to start pretty much immediately once you become a public company. That that will go for uh, the day until you stop become being a, a public company. Sounds like a lot of rules and regulations <laughs> to navigate. <laughs> Probably want your SEC and general counsel on speed dial. Um, so Chase, you mentioned some of the periodic reporting requirements. I know generally the size of the company drives the timing of the filing, but can you maybe elaborate on some of the specifics there? Yeah, I, I will just get back to what you said on SEC counsel. You know, a lot of this stuff is if you're an accounting or finance department, you know, you're not alone. <laughs> Don't make decisions alone. Loop in your counsel, general or SEC, and they'll really help you kind of navigate all these things. Because again, you know, in this podcast, we're just kind of summarizing some of the stuff and there's thousands and thousands of pages of yeah. all these things. Especially in like the early stages of when you're first going through some of this stuff, you know, in the first few periods or whatever. Um, you know, over time, I think a lot of this will become more habitual for the company. And as they grow, they may bring in more talent to help kind of alleviate some of the demands in some of these spots. But, you know, it's definitely, you know, don't walk the, walk the line by yourself. <laughs> Yeah, and with that, Sarah, one of the most important things to to not lose sight of is actually the filer type. Um, and like you said, that's driven based on the size, public float, and, and revenue. Um, and, and you might go from uh, an EGC, which we've covered in the previous um, podcast, to, uh, and an SRC, which you've got a little bit more time to mm -hmm. get these filings with the SEC, to a non-accelerated filer, an accelerated filer, and a large accelerated filer. So there's <laughs> kind of five classes that you know, knowing which one you you fall in gets back to the SEC counsel question is, you know, don't be alone in, in analyzing the stuff because it has huge ramifications in terms of planning for your your, your next filings. Um, filer status is determined at the end of the fiscal year. So if you're a 1231 company, it'll be determined at that point in time. What's interesting though is it's based on your annual revenue, but also your public float as of the last day of your second quarter. Um, and then this is effective for most companies will be their first 10K within February, January, February timeframe of the, of the future year. Well, that all sounds pretty complex. Does this come with a decoder ring? <laughs> um, sounds like you got to solve a mystery here and seems pretty important, especially with planning for next year's status and all of those deadlines. Yeah, there's a lot to untangle. 
and there's a lot of interpretive guidance. You know, you can read the SEC's financial reporting manual, which is a few hundred pages long to try to get some insight. You can look at all the big four guidance, our guidance. Um, but really, the filing status and getting that right and planning to get that right is, is extremely important because you could go from filing your annual 10K um, from a large accelerated filer, which is in 60 days, an accelerated's got 75, and a non-accelerated new public have 90 days. So if you're moving in between these buckets, you know every day matters for some of these companies that are new to the to the 10K audit game. Uh, if you're going to go from 90 to 60, that's a huge amount of time. And right. so planning for that is is very important. And then for your 10Qs, um, large accelerated and accelerated pilots have 40 days. Everybody else has got 45. So you know again, that's a five days is a, is a serious amount of time if you're going to be moving in between those those categories. Absolutely. Well, Chase just covered a few of the most well-known periodic reporting requirements, but what about some of the other current reporting requirements that most public companies will file and or furnish? Which, by the way, what's the difference between filing <laughs> and furnishing after? Sure. Yeah, so let's take that last question there first, just to get that out of the way. So I know filing, furnishing, it just you know sounds <laughs> like semantics you know we're playing with here, but Really, when it comes to the SEC and kind of the rules under the Exchange Act, um, you know, items that are filed with the SEC are actually ones that are going to be subject to liability if there's omissions or misrepresentations by the company or its executives, whereas items that are furnished to the SEC um, don't necessarily warrant those types of liabilities. But then it also, as it relates to just providing information to um, the public, you know, we've talked about periodic reporting, but one of the biggest kind of things that newly public companies really have to get their hands around is what's known as kind of current reporting. And so this is basically putting out information in a very short period of time. So the rules itself basically state you've got four business days following any type of um, required qualifying events or material qualifying events um, that are you know, issued on a form 8K. Mm -hmm. um, and this is really just to provide relevant information, insight to investors and users of the financial statements for any certain events that may have occurred at the company. And there's a whole list of things that can qualify. Well, maybe you could go into some of those <laughs> things on the list. Yeah, I'll hit some. Um, <laughs> this is definitely not all encompassing. So this is a definitely in an area that I think companies really need to establish good policies and processes around and make sure they've got this well communicated throughout the organization. Um, you know, oftentimes as part of an IPO readiness assessment, this is probably a big area that gets highlighted is just making sure companies are aware of kind of the rules around Form mm -hmm. AK um, and when they need to be, you know, basically prepared to issue their, their timely form. So some of the events that could warrant the need to provide a Form AK, so some of the more obvious ones are like when you have a significant acquisition or even like a disposition of you know assets or a business, if there's a change in control of the entity, you know, bankruptcy proceedings, um, changes in your auditor is another one that comes up from time to time. Um, if you've got changes in certain directors or executives of the company, you know, things like that, that you know, understanding what those changes might be, you know, restatements. So if you've got audit issues, like if you're having to restate or revise financial statements, you have to provide that information. Um, if there's significant exit or disposal activities, restructuring types of things going on at the company, those types of events have to be disclosed. 
material impairments or kind of changes in you know the values of certain assets or liabilities those types of events could um, also warrant the need for a form 8k so so like i said there's a variety of topics this is not all encompassing you know definitely look to to the rules there and make sure you're familiar with those especially if you know you foresee any of these events you know on the horizon so that was a pretty long list. Yep. <laughs> and you mentioned that there were even more things that would probably be included. So maybe sure. it would be helpful if we talk through when we wouldn't need to file a Form 8K. Yeah, I know. It sounds like, are there any <laughs> things yeah. that you don't? Um, and there are. Like I said, there's there's certain discrete events that regardless of like, you know, maybe call it the size or magnitude, you're still required to always file a Form 8K. But then there are also going to be certain events where it is based on whether or not that event is considered material. And so obviously when you hear material, that's like the, the judgment bulb goes off in the office and everyone's, you know, you're going to have to apply some, some discerning um, analysis to that. So really just thinking about what's important for investors, what could influence investors or analysts, you know, to buy, sell or hold your securities. Um, and, and note that the SEC will definitely scrutinize judgments made on things that you didn't disclose that uh, maybe you should have on Form 8K that, that you determined that weren't material, um, there could be some pushback there. So it, it's definitely an area where you need to have established policies and procedures. Okay, so most of the financial and non non-financial information we've covered is either historical by the time it's actually been provided to the public or current with these Form 8Ks. So Chase, how are investors kept informed about future performance of these companies? Yeah, you know, the, our world is moving extremely fast. And when I think about a, a Form 10Q, it's three months of data. The first month by the time it actually gets furnished with the SEC, filed with the SEC is already essentially three months old. Nope. And that seems like an eternity when it comes to stock trading. And et cetera, and you know, stock prices are also future driven, and so mm -hmm. companies and analysts and owners of the of those stocks kind of want to know how to predict what the future, what the price is going to be. Um, so I think it's important to note that public companies are not required to actually communicate guidance um, with with their, with their exchanges, um, but like I said, analysts are demanding and owners are demanding, and so companies. Will generally provide guidance, you know, annual mm -hmm. from a, from an estimate standpoint, twelve months out, um, and they'll communicate that either quarterly with revisions to the annual estimate each quarter, or they'll just communicate it once a year. So really, it's kind of up to the company and their practices, and probably gonna look at what their competitors are doing and what their analysts really want as well to try to find the the right road of how to how to communicate guidance. Um, the legal landscape here obviously is extremely important to navigate. When I look and listen to earnings releases and statements, you know, it's littered with qualifications and disclosures and <laughs> yeah. disclaimers. And so it's very important to make sure that everybody understands from the company who they're saying, what and when and why about guidance, um, et cetera. Um, guidance can take many different forms. I think as we all know, you can revenue guidance, gross profit guidance, EPS, earnings per share guidance, adjusted guidance, which I think is probably one of the most common right now, especially with the SEC focusing on uh, non-GAAP, you know, private equity love, they love non-GAAP, they love adjusted EBITDA, it's probably the, yep. EBITDA is probably the most common thing we're hearing right now, so. But with this, you know, companies need to make sure they're complying with what's known as Regulation G in terms of these, of these, of this guidance. Um, so how companies provide guidance um, or deliver guidance uh, usually kind of follow some similar paths and it's earnings releases, 
which are which are published. Um, earnings calls are probably are the most are the most common earnings narratives, and this usually happens around the same time as a 10Q or 10K um, go out. Um, this information is generally found on a company's website as well, so anybody can kind of have access to it um, as it goes. So yeah, and I think it's important just to remember, like like issuing guidance or the expectation of issuing like there's no rules that you have to do it again so it's it, it is investor expectations like if a company does have a a history of providing guidance then like the absence of guidance is almost just as bad like because people yeah. are expecting it or if it's delayed you know there's implications that you haven't issued guidance yet um but also companies really and we saw this quite a bit actually during COVID is that a lot of companies that maybe initially provided guidance early in the year, you know, COVID comes sweeping in, throws <laughs> everyone for a loop. There were a lot of companies back in like 2020 and even in 20, they were pulling guidance, right? Mm -hmm. Because their guidance was based on a completely different set of circumstances. And now the world had completely changed and the outlook was very unknown. So there, you know, it, it's something that I think companies have to be prudent about is that Hey, let's you know be cautious. What have we put out there to the public as information, and also keeping in mind that you know it is forward-looking, it is cautionary, but we don't want to be completely misleading. So um, if Either there is a need to pull guidance yeah. or update guidance, you know that is something that companies will do from time to time. Um, and you know a lot of companies may be hesitant to do that because they're like, well, if I update my guidance and it's not as favorable as my initial guidance, obviously that's going to take a hit to probably the share price of the of the company. But you know, if you think about it, if you don't do anything, and then when your actual results come in and you don't meet expectations, you're going to take a hit then as well. So it's kind of just like, you know, you want to be forthcoming with you know when there's a need to change it, and you should generally have policies and procedures that are established by the company. Your investor relation groups are well aware of kind of how you're going to handle these situations, and you know, you make the adjustments where you see fit. That's really helpful. So I'm going to lob this next question to both of you. What are some other major items that new public companies need to be mindful of? Just a very broad, general question for you. Uh, socks is near and dear to my heart. As no, an, nobody, as an ex nobody says that. <laughs> nobody <laughs> utters those words. Yeah, as an ex-auditor. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm more interested as always to hear what Adam has to say first. Uh, well, okay, if you take socks, then I'll, I'll talk about kind of the fair disclosure regulation. So regulation FD is, a, is kind of the, the regulation on fair disclosure. So um, basically, you know, as soon as a company starts having securities, so equity debt securities that are publicly traded, they're going to be subject to known as what's like the fair disclosure regulations. And, and really this, this regulation is, was put in place to basically ensure that dissemination of information that a company has is provided broadly to all um invested related interested parties mm -hmm. and that there is no absence of information that may be provided to a subset of certain people either intentionally or inadvertently um, and not to others so that being said you know analysts are always kind of prying companies for you know very roundabout ways to get as much information as they can of like how things are going what a company's foreseeing forecasts are they going to meet something and so they're always trying to kind of get information from from um, executives you know investor relation groups etc um you know companies really have to be cognizant of that 
they're not sharing certain selected information with some investors or some analysts and not to the broader group. And so that's where regulation fair disclosure comes in, which basically states that like, hey, if you're going to have a one off conversation with a certain investment bank or something like that, you better like damn be sure that you're going to provide that exact same information mm -hmm. either immediately or you know, as soon as, you know, inherently possible to the rest of the broader public. And so generally that'll be done through the issuance of maybe an 8K filing. You know, a lot of times you'll see people put out press releases or you know, information on their websites or a combination of all these different things, but there better be like clear dissemination of information that it wasn't, you know, one-sided to one party favorably versus other people. And sometimes this happens inadvertently, like, you may not even realize that you're kind of tripping up something and it just kind of happens um, or somebody slips something out and maybe, you know, you're presenting to a, you're doing like a webinar or like a roundtable discussion with a group of analysts and you slip some information out and, you know, having like a conversation with a select group of people, you know, following that, you're probably going to have to do something where you, you know, broadly provide that information or you could be subject to liability as well there. You know, there are certain parties in this that, aren't applicable you know if you think about you know client attorney privilege like with a lawyer or something like that so any like conversations you like a company might be having with their external counsel you know auditors for example you know have conversations with them there are certain parties like that that are privy to information that you wouldn't necessarily then feel like you have to put out to the public um, but when you're thinking about the investor capital markets community you just want to make sure that everyone's getting their fair share of information and that's being provided timely. Yeah, I think most people what just go to Reddit. Uh, Reddit. What's, what's the what's the uh, what's the Reddit channel now that everyone's going to? Is that where you find it all? Yeah. All the insider Wall stuff. Wall Street bets. I Wall think. Street. Yeah, yeah, that's probably what it is. My husband checks that daily. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> so that that that's it on on FD. Like I said, definitely it's something to be aware of. You know, if you got SEC counsel, they're probably you know giving you the cliff notes version of what you need to be informed about. But, you know, policies, procedures around that. It's just another area that, you know, newly public companies are going to have to deal with. Um, so keep that one on the radar as well. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like I do need to, like, disclaim, don't rely on Wall Street. But <laughs> that, was, that yeah. was not actual advice given <laughs> So I'll kick over uh, the Sox chatter to yeah. Chase. Yeah, the ex-auditor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I spent a lot of time on Sox. Yeah, so Sox, there's a couple aspects of it we kind of mentioned on a, on a previous podcast. You have 404, 302, and 906. So we'll cover each one. And so 404 obviously is the biggest and the most significant piece that came out of the whole Sarbanes-Oxley Act. And there's A and B. So 404A, 404B. A relates to management, and that's them giving their own assessment of their internal controls. And then there's B, 404B, which is the actual auditors auditing management's assessment. And that's the big time commitment that everybody thinks about when they're doing integrated audits of if you're going to be testing your balance sheet, you're testing hundreds of controls, and then you're testing your balance sheet type of type of stuff. So that is that is a big piece about being a public company. And there's a lot of strategy behind when companies go public and how it impacts their 404A and B. Because if you recall from our previous podcast, these new public companies get exemptions from having to do this. So it's their first year, they don't have to do this. Second year, they do. So let's say you're a new company, you go public in Q3 of a calendar year end, file your first 10K. Okay, the next year, you have to be complying with 404 A and B. Now, if you were to go public in Q1, you'd have essentially two full years to get ready for 404. 
which is kind of what a lot of companies do now. Timing's everything when it comes to the stock price and the capital markets. But you know there is a lot of strategy involved of companies doing that because it is such a huge undertaking to to accomplish and to get right. And yeah, um, and if you've got a short window or you're expecting to have a short window, I mean, a lot of people will even just start it you know, pre-IPO, mm -hmm. right? They're already kind of putting in, that's part of that IPO readiness as well, is just evaluating like, when it comes time for us to have to take on the full, yep. the full-fledged SOX requirements, like let's try to shore that up sooner than later so we're not just chasing it, you know, year one as a public company. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, what's important to note too, is we talked about EGCs, you know, they have exemptions and SRC, so EGCs are exempt from 404B for five years unless certain uh, other criteria are met that disqualifies them from being an EGC. Smaller reporting companies never have to do 404B, which is huge. Ooh, lucky you. Yeah, so they are very lucky. Uh, but again, they have to monitor it. They have to monitor filer status like we chatted about um, to see if they actually trip something up and need to go go public. So monitoring your filer status is extremely important, especially if, if something dramatic happens at your business that all of a sudden you need to be a 404B uh, compliant. So in addition to SOX 404, some other really key aspects of that uh, that act are 302 and 906, also known as management certifications. Uh, they are filed quarterly and annually, usually by the CEO and the CFO. And so as a consultant or an auditor, you're gonna hear about management certs with these filings quite often. So 302 certification addresses responsibility for the accuracy, documentation, and submission of all financial reports, as well as internal control structure to the SEC. And 906 certification addresses criminal penalties for certifying a misleading or fraudulent financial report. And under 906, penalties can be up to five million in fines and 20 years in prison. So this is, you know, the significant personal liability that these executives are placing as they sign off. So they are they are definitely feeling the pressure of getting the stuff right. And, and with these certifications through to a 906, what we're gonna what you're gonna hear a lot too is about subcertifications. You know, trying to push down some of this risk to other people at the organization so it's just not the CEO and the CFO that feel the immense pressure of getting all this stuff right. Uh, I think the last thing I'll wrap up on, on 302 and 906 is that the wording of those statements is it's fixed yep. with the SEC. <laughs> There's no change in it. It is it is dictated by them of what you are signing. So, um, And just a couple other items I'd probably throw in on my limited socks knowledge. <laughs> um, no, just kidding. Um, just a few more things to kind of keep in mind is one's around audit committees. So obviously, you know, socks establishes the need that there has to be an audit committee. And obviously the audit committee members um, do need to be independent. Mm -hmm. um, so independent, you know, committee members, you know, when you're thinking about that, obviously they can't be taking any type of compensatory fees other than or fees that are directly related to their capacity to serve in that role um, on the audit committee itself or you know this is also the same for any board members etc things of that nature and then also for that audit committee just kind of keeping in mind that you always have to have at least one member of the audit committee that's kind of considered that financial um, expert they have that expertise accounting and finance to really help guide the rest of the committee um you know as it relates to anything accounting and finance related so at least one member of that oftentimes you'll see multiple members that have that expertise but just another requirement established by by sarbanes and then one last thing is really just around loans um, specifically to executives so sarbanes actually actually prohibits any type of loan arrangements that the company may have so this is 
extending credit or maintaining existing credit that may have um, been there prior with any you know executives of the company or you know board of directors or committee member directors. Um, you know, there's some exceptions to this rule. You know, if so, if it's you know reimbursement for certain expenses that are permitted under company policies, you think about like travel or entertainment expenses or relocation type expenses, those types of things obviously are ancillary to, to what the, the rule is trying to get at here. This is more direct specific loans that the company's making to its executives or directors. Awesome. And one final question, and I'm going to bring out the fastball. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> there seems to be a lot of conceptual discussion around environmental, social, and governance disclosure, or most often referred to as ESGs. So Adam, can you elaborate on what this means for public companies? Yeah, so I think everyone's like, if you haven't heard about ESG, you've just kind of been turning your ear away from it <laughs> because it, it really is all over the place, you know, particularly more prevalent to public companies, which is why we want to bring it up for those that are, you know, heading down that journey of becoming a, a newly found public company. Um, you know, ESG really is top of mind for a lot of people. So investors, lenders, um, credit agencies, even the regulators, you know, policymakers, you think about the FASB and the SEC, they're starting to weigh in and look to it. So there's just a lot of like development happening and it's been happening pretty rapidly um, in the last couple years um, that that has garnered a ton of interest and buzz around the concept of ESG and how relevant it is to public companies and the information they provide. Um, so given that there's so much interest in ESG and what's going on, I think you know companies really have to be prudent about what are their current ESG practices that they have if they've even started to think about those. So it's really like, what are the business strategies or are the operations or are our long-term strategic objectives of how we view ESG? So like I said, all those parties, a lot of you know interest buzz, people are really kind of like getting into the ring around ESG. And so with that, I think a lot of companies are really having to consider how ESG will impact you know, their their own business strategies, their, the, how they operate their company, um, where they see their long-term investments being made. And as they really start to kind of hone in on these different strategies, they need to think about like how incorporating these different ESG components um, could impact their financial statements. So that being said, for public companies and you know thinking about SEC reporting requirements, um, you know the SEC, I think back in 2010, did put out some like limited like you know guidance around environmental type topics, climate related topics that they need to like think through um, in various aspects of their filings. So it's important that companies, if they're gonna, um, you know, kind of have this these initiatives in place, or they're gonna have strategies around these initiatives that they they you know address them in specific parts of their filings. So you know when you're thinking about disclosures around the business or maybe risk factors or MDNA, those types of areas like where you'd expect to have some conversation around this. Um, and then in more recent developments, you know, like talked about 2010 then, but you know, this past year in 2021, you know, we see the SEC with Chairman Gensler, you know, coming to the helms there. You know, he's really kind of going full-fledged forward with putting more rules-based structure around, you know, the ESG reporting. And so, you know, particularly with climate-related disclosures, we expect to see more concrete rules come forward. Um, to really kind of put some harmonious um, information and, you know, the way the public disseminates that information to investors and analysts out there um, in a more orderly fashion. Because 
like I said, there are a lot of companies that are already kind of doing this, but everyone's kind of doing it their own unique ways. And so it does become very challenging. I think, you know, investors see this as well, just to like compare and contrast amongst different companies, make sure that people are being um, complete and accurate and forthright with what they put out there. So definitely we'll see more structure coming around this. And I think that's a big part of his agenda is really trying to um, kind of move forward with some of these regulations. So it's definitely an area you know, as you journey into that public company world, this is something that's, you know, true to your company or important to your company. And you expect to have some initiatives around this, um, which we expect most will um, to really watch this, especially in, you know, this year in 2022 and even into 2023, because I think we'll see quite a bit of movement. Yeah, I think it's whether you like it or not, it's coming. Mm-hmm. And it's just when's that framework going to be kind of established for that consistency. But I think all the, the behind the scenes stuff a company can start assessing now to kind of get that stuff built into place, almost like a four or four yep. analysis to kind of, you know, plan accordingly, get your strategy and your internal ESG strategy and reporting and how do you support, if you're saying you're net zero, how do you support that? Like getting some of that yep. stuff in place um, and then you can kind of put it into the framework when the framework's built, so. Sounds like a perfect opportunity for more podcasts. <laughs> Always is. Yeah, I like listening to you too, so keep it up. You, well, can, you can branch out, it doesn't have to be accounting. <laughs> this is true. With that, we can drop the mic on this IPO mini-series. Just don't tell our podcast engineer. And if you'd like to learn more about IPOs and you haven't listened to the previous four episodes of the mini-series, I'd say that's probably a great place to start. And we will have additional resources available in the show notes. Thank you, Adam and Chase, for helping me in this mini-series on a high note. You bet. And thank you, listeners, for following along on another episode of Accounting Matters. Thanks for having me. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.